0: Yo, what's going on Leon here. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Mike McHowards, the author of Profit First, The Pumpkin Plan, uh, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur and a bunch of other books with a new book coming out, Fix This Next. And I'm proud to have him on the show because he's really someone that impacted my business and my life while I was building my e-commerce businesses. And he made the topics of accounting and business systemization and just focusing on the right things. Very simple, understandable and very practical as well as entertaining. Can You Believe It? An Accountant Book, that's entertaining. And in this episode, we're speaking to him about profiting first, as well as his background story of how he built a business, sold it, was really cocky and arrogant, and bought a Range Rover, a BMW, and a Dodge Viper on the same day, went to vacations, and thought, hey, I can do anything. Uh, Started a bunch of companies, did some angel investing, and lost it all in two years, and then had to tell his family sorry guys I kind of screwed up and how he got out of that how he rebuilt himself after a couple of years of depression and drinking and hating himself and just feeling like a failure so in this episode we talk about all these things as well as his new upcoming book and I think you're gonna love this episode especially if you currently have a business that's up and running that is maybe not as profitable not as big not as uh, freedom giving as you want it to be and Without further ado, let's dive right into it. This is the Collective Ambition podcast. Really excited to have you on the show. Um, so in today's episode, we have um, Mike, um, my my cow has tits. <laughs> or is, um, Co- my 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 zits. <laughs> or what? Uh, sorry, it's I'm a bit nervous. What, what, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it felt like a throwback to grade school because those were my nicknames. I was, uh, Mike, my cow has shits, Mike Poppinsets, Mike schmidt Uh, it's pronounced McCallowitz, but honestly no one can. So I go by my nickname, Mike motorbike. That's the easiest one. It's called me Mike motorbike.
0: <laughs> yeah. So today we are going to talk about overcoming traumas from childhood bullies. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I didn't have any of that. I have a pretty yeah normal last name. Um, but, uh, yeah. So for those of you listening who are wondering what, what, what is this? Um, so if you check out Mike Bacala's website, uh, you'll see that next to his name, I just encourage you to, to check it out and, and click the, the sound, uh, icon next to it. But, uh, yeah, for those of you who don't know Mike, um, Mike is the author of quite a few books who I absolutely loved. One of them is profit first, which has really impacted me, especially when I was starting my first business. Um, which I've also now sold and then seeing a similar transition that you went through, that I went through as well, where you start thinking that, Oh, I have a lot of money now. And then you start wasting a bit of it. Also another book, uh, pumpkin plan, loved it as well. Uh, toilet paper entrepreneur. And you also have a new book coming out next year, which is going to be. Called fix this next. Fix this next, next. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'd like to jump in by just having you tell kind of like your backstory of how you got where you are now, um, sure. specifically in terms of, um, yeah, the backstory that you gave in Profit First, because I think that's really- a good- oh, Okay,
1: sure. I'll, I'll highlight that. So the the bullet points that go on CV are, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. Ever since I graduated college, I've grown and sold a couple companies. Uh, I had a Fortune 500 exit. I had a, a private equity exit, and uh, I cooperate a few businesses today those though are simply the bullet points on the CV. I think the compelling or interesting part of my story is what I wrote in the book is I lost all my money. So as I was operating those businesses, they were never sustainably profitable. I was cocky and arrogant thinking I knew all of the elements necessary for entrepreneurial success, but I didn't. And it was actually after I sold my second company, I started a third business, which was as an angel investor. I started multiple companies. I was throwing money into these businesses because I was so overly confident in myself. And I I wiped myself out. I actually lost my home over this. I lost all my possessions. The only thing I didn't lose was my family. And I um, became the darkest period of my life, but also it's interesting how these dark periods in hindsight become the most revealing, uh, probably the most important parts of our life. So I I had started anew and I realized I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. I I think back. I knew very little And I had this perverted pride in just pushing through and selling harder and just grow, grow, grow. So I decided to become an author, um, in part because it was a dream of mine to always do this. Secondly, because I needed to correct my own issues. I was researching and trying to figure out what I was doing wrong. So today, for the last 11, almost 12 years now, I've been an author full-time. I write business books specifically for small business owners. And I, um, every book I've written, honestly, is solving a problem I didn't understand and trying to solve it for myself because I do operate more businesses now and hopefully serve other people. And that's that's who I am.
0: Nice, so I'm curious to know what are some of the things that were like the biggest lessons that you learned and that you finally got about entrepreneurship and what, what were you thinking you knew about entrepreneurship before that big, uh, yeah, disaster happened?
1: Yeah, so, I I was a big fan of the hustle and grind. I misinterpreted what that meant. It is necessary. especially in the early stages of businesses that you got to really push the business forward. But at a certain point, it becomes this um, artificial means of growing a business that I got to work harder. If I want to make another hundred thousand or a million dollars, I need to work X more hours and put that much more effort in. I call it the superhero syndrome where we swoop in and we save that upset client. We, we, we push the company forward. We, we pull magic out of a hat effectively. And uh, I thought that's how you grow a business. But what it does is the exact polar opposite. It makes the business more and more dependent on the owner. So if I take one day off or if I'm sick or tired, the business is sick and tired. I realize it's organizational efficiency, not maximizing my own productivity. And I, I wrote clockwork around that. Profit First, that's my most popular book currently. And, what I discovered is the traditional formula that we're told around profitability actually hurts business. We're told it's our sales. You subtract your expenses and what's left over is profit. The funny fact is, or the sad fact is for the vast majority of small businesses, and there's 180 million small businesses globally, small business is defined by a company that has $25 million in annual U S revenue or less. I mean, that's a, it's a big number, I think. So it's probably most of the listeners. It's definitely my business. 180 million, 83% 83% is the statistic I heard, 83% of these businesses are in check to check survival. They're not profitable. They're barely getting by. They're panicking to sell something to somebody this week to cover payroll or rent or their own salary next week. Well, I discovered that the formula we use while logically it makes sense, your sales minus expense equals profit. Behaviorally, it's the worst thing we can have because it puts profit last and it's human nature. When something comes last, it means it's insignificant. Like, if you love your family, you don't say, I put them last. If you hate your family, you say, that's why I put them last. You know, your health, if it's important to you, put your health first. If it's not, you put your health last. If profit's important to you, it comes first. If it's not, it comes last. And we've been told it comes last. What I teach in profit first is to flip the formula. It's sales minus profit equals expenses. And simply by an execution, when we take in revenue, we immediately take a predetermined percentage of that money, profit, allocate and hide it away. And then the remainder is what we have left to run our business. That's what I wrote profit first about. So this is two examples of the books I've written in that often these established beliefs, efficiency comes out of productivity. It doesn't, it comes out of organizing the resources collectively. Your profit comes out of taking it last. It doesn't, it comes out of taking it first. I challenge the established paradigms that we're working under. Try it on myself, try these new forms myself. So profit first, for example, I started that, well, I started that uh, many eight, five to to eight years before I actually wrote the book. Clockwork I did for three years before I wrote the book. So I guinea pig myself and people that are willing to be guinea pigged, And then I write the book about it. And hopefully this is a formula that will serve generations of entrepreneurs uh,
0: to come. Definitely. I mean, it It really helped me. And I can sing you a song about this whole phenom- phenomenon of not being profitable. And you think you're profitable yeah. because I used to be in e-commerce. I sold my business also last year. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. And I also made similar experiences where you have that pile of money all of a sudden, and then you start spending left and right. And then all of a sudden you have three gym memberships, which you're not using and you just keep them running. And it's just, you're wasting money. So that's also something that I experienced as well. But the biggest thing was really, while I had my e-commerce business, I had so many friends as well who were in the same industry. They also had an e-commerce business that ended up making millions on paper in revenue. And then later on, they would call me. I actually had a friend call me who said, oh my God, Leon, I just looked at my numbers. I actually punched it all into an Excel sheet and I just made a few grand. And Mm. its you've probably seen a lot of stories of that, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting. We play these fiscal games effectively, the accounting games. Now, one of the biggest um, collapses around commerce of all time. I just business and all time was Enron. It's a recognized global phenomenon. The interesting thing about Enron is they were reporting profitable to be profitable, even then they were losing cash and they were not from the entrepreneur's definition, but they were following to some degree. Initially the legal loopholes <laughs> to post profit. Well, that's the problem that we do. We, we follow these little loopholes to convince ourselves and it, it definitely gives us a general rush to announce we had profit at the end of the year. For about two minutes, and then you ask yourself, well, where's that money? And there's nothing because it's an accounting profit. It's already been spent. Then it's this deflating moment. And it's like, damn it, maybe next year. And we, we truly kick the can down the road for a full year to reconsider profit. What we do here with the profit first formula is we're going to extract profit every time there's a transaction. So a deposit comes in today. We prepay ourselves the profit of 10% or whatever the percentage is we determine, hide that money from ourselves in a, in a hidden bank account. And what it does now forces our business to run off the remainder, which is truly what the business must run off of. If we want to sustain that profit We're basically reverse engineering profitability. So if you want to have a 10% profit, this is what you must do. And it starts forcing us to work within the parameters of what's truly available to operate our business. The interesting thing too, is with the money allocated, that profit allocated, we now have a cash profit. The definition that entrepreneurs use, you know, I talk to any entrepreneur, like, did you have a profit this year? It's yes or no. But the definition of it is, did I take cash out above and beyond a normalized salary? If not, you know, th- then it's just a shell game. It's a phantom profit. So profit first is using what I think is the entrepreneur's definition of profit. Cold, hard cash waiting for you to distribute to you, the owner, as a shareholder of the business, as a reward for operating or running that business. We also, and I talk about this in the book, we also take a normalized salary so profit is different than salary a profit is a reward for being a shareholder for starting the business or investing in it for serving your community or employees our world the owner's comp is another account i talk about in profit first which is a normalized compensation for the owner of the business to pay them because inevitably the owner is the best employee in the business we got to ensure that we're paying them
0: accordingly mm, makes it a lot of sense i mean Especially in finances, I think it's really important that we put some systems in place or a plan or something that we stick to because it's so easy to get carried away and just let our human emotions screw it all up, um, especially yeah. when you're selling a business. I mean, what, what did you what did you uh, spend your money on, and, and what were some of the decisions that you oh,
1: made? <laughs> I, I was such an arrogant jerk I, uh, When I sold my first business, I, I made adequate come from money my so my second business for me is the most money I ever had in my life and uh, so I decided now I need to represent the new standard so I started off with the trophies I bought a Land Rover I bought a BMW I bought a Dodge Viper all of them on the same day just to get you a sense of how oh what, my what a dick I was a total dick I uh, I remember we got a, a sabbat- we went on a sabbatical in Hawaii we got a house out there on a private island and I moved into an expensive town, probably one of the more expensive towns in New Jersey, the state I live in. And um, I just felt <clears throat> like I needed to show off my success. The other thing I did too, is I had this new belief that grow a company and sell a company is how you make money, pump and dump. So I decided to become an angel investor. I started almost 10 companies simultaneously. It was a disaster. I had no right to be in that space. I had no clue what I was doing. It was businesses were in disparate industries, so they didn't compliment. and. All of them, except for one, all of them were out of business within six months. I was just blowing money. Uh, it took me you know, a good 15 years, I think of owning businesses, maybe a little bit longer, to achieve uh, as, a, as a millionaire in my early 30s. So, um, so maybe it wasn't 15 years, maybe it was about 12 years I got there. And then uh, it took me less than two years to evaporate all of our wealth. And it was, it was humbling. Um, I I had to, I kind of shared a story. I had to go home to my family to tell them we're going to lose everything. And when I did, I was at the dinner table, sobbing, finally revealing this to my family. My daughter ran out of the room to grab her piggy bank. And she ran back to me and said, uh, daddy, I'll, I'll support our family if you can't. And that, that's how bad it was. She was nine years old feeling compelled to support us. And, um, I went through two years of depression during that, right after that, um, became a drinker, um, just really just lost control. The beauty though, and why I love that period of my life now, or at least why I appreciate it. I wouldn't wish that experience on even my worst enemy, but in retrospect, that experience gave me clarity is I don't know much about entrepreneurship. I have so much more to learn. And a lot of the established notions I was working under are fruitless you know, this concept, one thing we hear perpetuated in the entrepreneurial society is the how big is it question? How many employees do you have? What's your revenue like? And we laud growth of a business. You look at the cover of Inc. magazines uh, or or uh, Entrepreneur Magazine, you always see these wildly successful entrepreneurs inevitably defined by the size of their business, not the health of it. You know, these, these people could be losing money left and right, but we we laud them because of their size, and I think that's the worst parameter to use. In fact, even and I'm not retaliating against it, but the I think it's called the Inc. 5000, like that listing, that contest, which is an, an international contest and, and kind of revered. The, the challenge with it is it always measures one thing: growth. It ignores the health of a business. So I'm trying to give that balance to it. I, I believe the most important thing is a healthy business. I think the conversation between entrepreneurs shouldn't be how big's your business, how many employees you have it should be, how healthy is your business? How, how consistent is the bottom line? You know, that is the impressive number in my, my regard. And that, and that's why we started a business in the first place. Like I started a business for financial freedom. So shouldn't it be consistently profitable? So that's why I did what I did.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny that you say that, that you got into, um, uh, angel investing. Cause a friend of mine, he's, uh, also in e-commerce he's going to be selling his business for a few million now. Mm-hmm. And he's also like, Hey, I'm, I want to do some angel investing after that. Sure. I, I just told him like, listen to uh, this episode. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've actually got to send him this episode. Like, yeah, make sure oh. he
1: knows what he's getting into.
0: He, he doesn't, but he thinks, cause he, yeah, cause it, we, we have phone calls sometimes and he's like, Leon, you know how it is now we've built this thing up now. We've built our first business. Now we can just do anything. I'm <laughs> just right. like, yeah.
1: He, sound, he sounds very, very human because that's the normal. Yeah. It's, it's called an affirmation bias. What we do is we want to set a belief for ourselves. Hey, I, I, could, I could be successful in any business. That's what I believed about me. And I looked back and said, well, see, I have a proven track record, two exits. I mean, who does that? Clearly, I know my stuff. But when you peel back the onion, those businesses, when I operated them, they weren't healthy financially. I was lucky in hindsight. It was good timing to get the two exits. The right buyer was in the right position at the right time to acquire a actually struggling business. Both of them were not healthy. They were growing, they had good revenue, horrible health. And uh, this affirmation bias kicks in and says, Oh, clearly I'm so smart. And we ignore all the other uh, counter information. We only uh, attract the supportive information and say, that's, that's the proof. And then we, then I went into a thing that was a total failure. So just uh, I want to heed people to heed warning. Um, of our own affirmation bias. It's very human, but we can make a grand mistake that can be costly.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I've experienced the same thing actually, where I I felt the same way. I was like, I'm just going to start this next thing now. And then it was a really humbling experience where, Hey, this is a completely different industry is something completely different that I'm doing now. And it was very humbling. Um, And uh, I would tell anyone that's selling their business uh, to really take some time off and really look at where do you want to go next? Because what I did was I just want to get into the next thing as soon as possible. And just thinking way too short term. I don't know if you have any, you probably do uh, any advice for people who are selling their business, what not to do, what to do. um, Because there's a lot of people that I know that are currently selling their business that are also listening to this podcast.
1: So yeah, I I do. The the most saleable business is actually one you don't want to sell, which sounds kind of crazy, but that's absolutely true. So if you feel compelled or desire to sell it, it means you're starting already to decrease the valuation of retaining it, which reduces your ability to negotiate effectively on your behalf. Um, there, there's an old saying, the prettiest girl the dance is the one that's already dancing, right? So you get attracted to something that's already, or someone in this case, that already is, uh, is not available. So with our business, make it a business that you first love. Secondly, make sure that it's highly profitable and yielding a lifestyle that you want. You achieve those two things, that is very saleable because other people want a business that they want and is making a lot of money. So now they want it. But the thing is, you'll also want it. And so now you're in this position saying, you know what, I don't need to sell it. I don't really desire to sell it. And then someone has to give you a sick offer in order to compel you to sell it. And that's what you want. There's a lot I talk about valuation, saying, you know, we're going to be a three times EBITDA because that's what the industry does, blah, 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 blah. Yes, there's truth to that. But in the small business market, your valuation is real simple. It's what is someone willing to pay you and what are you willing to accept? That's the definition of true valuation. All these theoretical things, while they can be guiding principles, it's really, it's someone willing to depart with the amount of money that you're willing to accept. And if you match, that's the value of the business, especially in the small business market. So that's one thing. The second thing is you also want bidders. Uh, the more people that's interested, the, the more value you'll get because it's human nature when something is less successful because more valuable. When they, <laughs> they, the outside acquirer, sees that there's other acquirers in, interested, now their valuation goes up. It's an emotional game. So make it so strong and healthy that you want to keep it forever. Secondly, then when the opportunity comes and someone wants to acquire it, say or go public with this and get other bidders involved, and then they will have to give you money that is so compelling that you're willing to give away what you love to do that's how you sell a business.
0: Yeah, it's great to hear that you confirm what I've told my friends and uh, now there's some more authority behind what I'm saying because, yeah, looking back, exactly the same thing, especially when it comes to the bidders, at least getting two offers because if you only get one offer, they they need to be competing for the business, right? Um, totally. Yeah, yeah, and uh whenever you, even if you don't think of selling your business, you should approach it as if you want to sell it because, Preparing a business for sale simply means having a healthy business. That's really cool and cool to Yes. Have. So whether you want to sell or not build it as if you want to sell it, like, like yeah. you're selling a product, make it really good.
1: Yeah. And my only tweak to that is I wouldn't say build it as if you want to sell it, build it. So it's sellable. And the, my only tweak is that I want you to love it, but to make something sellable is it cannot be, cannot be dependent on the owner. You know, when, when a business depends on the owner, it's not turnkey. So now the acquirers to say, well, if I buy this business, it's really I'm buying this owner to keep operating. And the day they're sick or they get hit by a bus, the whole thing's done. That's a huge risk. The most acquirable businesses are turnkey, meaning if the owner is absent, uh, the business keeps coming along. And, you know, look at McDonald's. I mean, a prolific company. Go to any McDonald's, and I actually do this. I'll walk in, I'll ask the cashier when I go to McDonald's, hey, may I speak with the owner real quick? And they'll look at me kind of like, mm, are you kidding? Because the owner's not here. The owner doesn't cook the burgers or doesn't, you know, put the fries in the fryer, and they're not in the glorified closet that they call a uh, office. That's the store manager. The owner, their job is to be a shareholder in the business, to make the investment up front, maybe to acquire and accumulate other locations, but they're not operating the business. That's therefore a McDonald's is very saleable because now if I buy that McDonald's, it doesn't depend on the owner. The the whole structure's there. Just keep it operating. So that's what we want to have. tight systems where there's no dependency on us as a business owner and uh, you'll become very acquirable.
0: Yeah. Almost as if you want to turn it into almost a franchise where, yeah, you don't have to be there at all. And that's Michael Michael Gerber's book, E-Myth, which is a must read
1: book. He talks about that, the franchise model, build it as if it's a franchise and you don't have to franchise it.
0: Yeah. That book also changed everything for me before I sold the business. I, I, yeah. For a few months, I just focused on setting systems in place and it was actually really fun. Like people hate it. They really don't want to do it. They procrastinate until the business is almost blowing up. But now I know what an impact it has. So yeah. it's actually, I actually enjoy it because I know this is going to change uh, my business. Yeah. Um, so going back to your period of depression and, and really being in that, in that really bad situation that you got yourself into, how did you pull yourself out of that? What was the process like? Was it like a something, was it like a moment where you said, okay, now I'm pulling myself up or was it a gradual improvement? Gradual
1: stuff. Yeah, I did find a tool though. So the
0: moment in retrospect was the
1: day my daughter put the piggy bank down the table. I felt so defeated, but it also built an internal anger toward myself. That That's what triggered the depression, but also an unwillingness to stand for this anymore. It was to me such a traumatic event that it became life defining. Um, It was so abrupt and painful. But then I I started, here, what I started doing was I started drinking to kind of squash the pain. I I didn't sleep well, self-medicating with booze. What was interesting is a friend of mine came to me and and I I was, thank God I was can with him. I said, I'm really struggling here. And he suggested I start journaling. Now, I thought a journal was like for success is like, you know, I got out of bed today. Wow. Check mark, you know, all (laughs) these things. And so that's what I was doing. And I'm like, this is the worst thing. Um, he said, no, no, a journal is just to empty your thoughts. He goes, regardless of the th- what the thoughts are, just write them down. And this became my counselor. So I wrote some of the angriest, nasty thoughts about myself, about people around me, to place blame, God. I just, just wrote. Sometimes some of the pages are just kind of ripped because I was pushing the pen in so hard. Here's what was fascinating about that, and I still journal today as a result of this, is... Sometimes as I wrote down all those angry thoughts, I would feel this relief just because I had vented the steam. And sometimes the relief would be like for five minutes, and I start getting angry again. Other times it was for five hours, or maybe even five days. But that period of time became the first moments I had of clarity again, and I could start moving forward. So I had five minutes of relief just to do something that was productive, or five hours, or sometimes five days, and then I start being productive again. And when I started feeling the slip again, I would just start writing, and uh, that became a really powerful tool for relieving the distraction i would argue of all the things i did that was the most effective for me the success was a very gradual long play and i think that's true for any business so as an author i didn't come out of the gates and like next day like oh my god this guy's wildly popular i still have a long long way to go the popularity is increasing um but the successes i have had or the popularity of profit first in particular clockwork now is a result of you know, 11 years of consistent, persistent effort. It's not anything like an overnight luck shot, you know, pot shot, and it just worked.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So what type of journaling do you do now? Is it literally still just the putting out the thoughts or do you ask yourself specific questions or do you do anything else uh, with that? Yeah, it's predominantly, so I do
1: both, but it's predominantly just putting out the thoughts. Whatever's occupying my mind, just write it down. So sometimes it's, there are positive thoughts. And even in the, even in the, struggling period, sometimes there are positive thoughts or ideas I had. So any thoughts that are on mind, I do that. Um, I, I've never really referred back to the journal. I've gone back maybe just a couple times, but never really referred back to it. And that's not the intention, it's not to preserve, it's actually to release thoughts, not to preserve thoughts. The um, other thing though, is I maintain a, um, I use OneNote, like Evernote, similar thing. I collect thoughts constantly. So I had an idea uh, just yesterday And uh, I collected the thought, I heard this amazing story about the school, UC Davis, uh, this university and how olive trees work at UC Davis. And I was like, Oh my gosh, capture this. I'm constantly capturing ideas now. And so I have uh, about 35 book concepts. I want to write one day, not, not all of them will happen. Some of them will fade away. They're just capture points. And I'm constantly dumping these ideas into where they could fit in my
0: future books. That's really interesting because uh, I don't know if you know Jeff Hoffman. Uh, he's the yeah, so. f- founder of Priceland.com and other, a bunch of other billion-dollar companies. And he, yeah, also no, said no, no. he also talks about this habit of um, being a sponge. So actually looking at different things and just reading a newspaper that you normally wouldn't read or just capturing ideas here and just collecting it. And then over, over time, your brain starts to organize something. And then when you're in the, in the shower, all of a sudden you have this cool idea. So I think it's also great, a great habit to have, definitely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think we should always be collecting ideas. I, you know, talk less, listen more, which as an author, as for what I do. It's very hard. I talk a lot. Um, but when I really take pause and dig into listening, it's very helpful. You know, another thing that I've done that maybe can help your listeners is um, I realize what my strengths are and they're very limited, but it was during that period of time I realized I I struggle, a a challenge I have, which now is an opportunity, challenge I have is understanding complex ideas. Like if there's many moving parts, it becomes very frustrating and difficult for me. Um, But when it's very simple, I can grasp it. So when I'm presented with something that's complex, I sit there and start, I keep on asking myself, how do I make this easier for me? Because I don't, I can't get it. Um, I don't read cash flow statements and even really income statements effectively. I I know kind of how they work. But it was much easier for me to simplify that down and say the root elements of it, what came about was profit first, is I wanted to take profit out and so forth. And I simplified it. Once I realized that is is my, you know, disadvantage advantage, once that weakness became very clear to me um, that I have to, I struggle with things and, and I have to make it simple for myself, I had the realization, oh, other people may have difficult times with complex stuff and I need to make it simple. And that became... My writing style is is if you read my books, they're simple reads. Uh, it, it is it's very obvious and easy and actionable these uh, ideas, uh, and it's a it's a guy who's going through it. So it's kind of an arm over the shoulder type read. I realize that's the elements that make me up and make me distinct. Interestingly, is this weakness I was able to spin into uh, an opportunity
0: yeah yeah for anyone listening highly recommend the books um thank you profit profit first sounds like an accounting book but it's it's way more than that it's very simple broken down and it's incredibly impactful if you implement uh what's what's being talked about there and that's exactly what i how i would, would describe your books it's it's these complex business topics narrowed down in very simple steps and also really entertaining which you wouldn't think about it in an accounting book or business books in general, but uh, yeah, you make it really entertaining and fun. Have you ever done comedy or improv? Was that something that you developed over time or?
1: Yeah, so um, kind of uh, with the comedy, I've been in a, the class clown. So it's interesting, I, I'm, this is a new thing I'm considering is often these things that we're told to constrain or restrain our opportunity. Um, so in, in school, I was disciplined regularly for being the class clown and being disruptive. Um, I have subsequently realized that's an opportunity I did take improv uh, for quite a while. My wife and I actually took the classes together. Yeah, it was a great way to get a date night in while also learning. And found that those re- those tools are a great way to um, disarm some difficult topics. Like, who wants to talk about freaking accounting? It's freaking boring. But if we can add some humor to it and simplify it, now it becomes pretty palatable. And that's, so I try to do that in all my books. And whenever I do presentations, like a keynote and stuff, I think it's important to have that little bit of comic relief. Not that I'm a professional comic, but just to have you know a little bit of, of relief.
0: Yeah, and I think that makes it so much more valuable. Was it was that something that uh, you did over time, or was it just something you're comfortable doing from the get go? Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm jo- like joking around. I'm in the business. Yeah, world. just from day one. I, that's just who I've always been. Now wow. the interesting thing is, at times I'm like, oh,
1: maybe I'm doing too much of it because it builds it builds a fandom, but also builds this community that doesn't like you. So there's people that say, this guy, he's all goofy. He doesn't take business serious. He's a tool. And at first I'm like, no, I'm not. And now I'm like, you know what? To them, I am a big tool. Like, I kind of get it. They're right. But on the flip side, there is a community that says, finally, a guy who speaks my language, finally, a guy doesn't take business so seriously that we can actually laugh while we're working. And so that community, I think, is energized while the other community is repulsed by my work.
0: Yeah and the question is do you want do you want them to read your stuff or be in your life anyways to people that don't like yeah, that Yeah it's, it's a good right? point
1: so, Yeah it's a good point it's not a fit I mean you know my my ego is like I want to be loved by everybody I want everyone to like me and I really do but I also realize that is so far from possible um yeah.
0: and it goes back to the pumpkin plan idea of you only want to serve those people that you really want to serve and that's right. you narrow it down and then Figure out okay what do they really like and give more to them what they actually want. So, yeah,
1: yeah. I think if if you if you try to serve everyone, everyone and you can, I think the response is a meh response. That the consumer base is is so not energized by what you do that they just feel an obligation because it's convenient rather to buy from you. Um, it's when you get this polarization of your community that something interesting happens. Is now the people that are fervent about you and love you. Start becoming your spokesperson. But more, what happens is the people that don't like you, when they get vocal about it, the people that do like you become even more emboldened to defend you. So, that, and you, and particularly in US politics, you see that a lot now. Like you take one side or the other, and whatever the other side says, it simply emboldens the other side. It's a classic human mindset. Well, this is true for all of our communities. And um, when we have that polarization, it often works to our advantage.
0: Yeah, that's how you build raving fans, right? Yeah, that's
1: how you build raving fans. Yeah, so, by building not raving fans, <laughs> by, yeah. by having both. Yeah,
0: yeah. So leading into the next book that's coming out, we don't want to put a deadline and pressure on you, but yeah, early next year. Early uh, next year, or so the book next is next it's
1: done. It's done. It's written. But cause I work with yeah. a like a traditional publisher. It just takes time. So mm-hmm. the book's done. It's ready to go. I am perhaps more energized about this book than I have any of the other books I've written, including Profit First, including Pumpkin Plan. Mm -hmm. And, um, what's so, I'm so excited about this book is I believe, and this is the thesis that the biggest challenge entrepreneurs have is we don't know what our biggest challenge is. What we do is we come in and we are a firefighter. We we look for, uh, flames and, and issues in our business. And we, we, we put the fire extinguisher on there before it becomes this inferno and we're constantly putting out fires, but the result is the business is careening forward and it's never going down a direct path. It's just going all over the place. Many businesses take three steps forward, two steps back, or two steps forward and more often three steps back and the owner gets frustrated. At Any given moment, there's one thing inside the business that will have the greatest impact on serving the business, right? That's the definition of the most. So there's one most important thing. The question is how do you pinpoint it? So fix this next. I studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs and discovered that there's a translation to business. There's a certain sequential structural need that needs that business have. And this tool acts as a compass. When you come in in the morning or you're facing any issue, we just look at this tool and we go through a series of you know, questions to reveal what is the big, biggest, most impactful need the business has now. You work on that and you uplevel your business. Then once that is addressed, we go back through this system. And we identify what's the next most impactful need. Now we're putting, you know, one foot forward, ground foot down, one foot forward, and, and we start marching forward exclusively as opposed to careening around and stepping back.
0: So it's kind of like uh, having different stages depending on where your yes. business is right now.
1: Yeah, I call them levels. Now, the interesting thing is it's not like a ladder. So I think the traditional business mindset is, you know, once I master step one or level one in the fix this is sales, like every business must have some source of inbound cash flow. It's the creation of cash flow. Level two is profit, which is the retention of cash, which brings about stability for a business. You know, we think is once we have sales mastered, now I'm gonna figure out profit. Once I have profit figured out, now it comes efficiency and other levels and we keep going up this ladder. But the reality is actually it's a ping pong. Once we have sales and that's going on, and then we start working on profit, we actually may have to revert back to sales to uh, bring more substance or more strength to that foundational level to bring about profit. Uh, And then once I have profit there, the game's not over it's just starting. Now I have to work on what I call order, which is this, uh, this organizational efficiency that we're talking about before. And then we have to talk about impact and legacy. It, it kind of keeps going. But the thing about impact, it, the impact is the idea of impact is that we're serving clients, not through a transaction, but for, through transformation, we're doing something more than providing that commodity. We are changing their lives in some way. A lot of not-for-profits set out and say, you know, we're going to resolve cancer and they're focused on the impact level, but they don't have the foundational levels in place. There's no sales or you know, donations that are charitable income that's coming in. There's no profitability, which translates to sustainability for a not-for-profit. So a lot of businesses try to leap up, ignoring the base, and the business is screwed. Other businesses start focusing on the base when a higher level needs to be addressed. Classic example, and I bet you a lot of listeners experience this, is the business isn't profitable. You're not taking home money. So we def- our default concept is, oh, I guess we need to have more sales. So we keep on increasing sales. But the problem is sales actually translates to stress. The more sales an organization has, the more obligation that business has to deliver on that promise, which is stress. And it often translates to the owner then taking on more stress. So more sales is more stress. When we have a profit problem, there's usually a fundamental issue with margin or cost control. We actually have to tweak those levers and not focus on more sales. Yet by default, we revert to more sales. So this book, Fix This Next, is about this entrepreneurial compass. It, it levers our instinct and gets us channeled to go in one direction consistently to grow and keep a strong foundation in the business.
0: Nice, I'm really excited uh, for it. And it really sounds like you've, uh, again, taken something complex and made it simple and very practical for people to implement. I hope so. I, You know, to me, I think this is the most important concept I've
1: ever developed. We'll see what readers say. They may say yes or may not. You know, only time will tell now. Um, but I believe it's the most important thing. We need to know what to do. Some people will come to me and say, Mike, you know, I've heard of your books. Which one should I read? And I used to say, oh, read Profit First or read Clockwork. Or you got to go back to the toilet paper entrepreneur. But what I was doing was simply just my own bias was kicking in. The question I now ask was someone says, what should I read? I say, you know, what's your problem? What's your biggest issue to your growth? What's your roadblock to achieving what you want to achieve? And sometimes they say it's efficiency and I'll say it's clockwork. Other times they say it's HR. I'm like, I haven't written the book, but there's a great book called Top Grading. You know, check that out. And so this is this concept is so important to me because I think we'll finally pinpoint the thing we need to do and not arbitrarily do things because other people said so or if our gut alone says to do something.
0: Yeah. It's Warren Buffett and Bill Gates who independently said it. Uh, yeah that the, the key thing for their success was focus. And I think that's what the book does, right? It helps you focus on, okay, what's the most important thing? Cause there's only, there's always only one thing that's the most important thing. So.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's, it's the definition of the word most. And uh, we have to work in sequential order and that's what this will do.
0: Yeah, beautiful. I'm really excited for it. Um, yeah, where can people find out more about you? Obviously your books. Uh, your
1: yeah, yeah, so my books, um, the website, I won't say Mike even though that's my website. It's Mike Motorbike, because that's the one we can remember. And it rhymes. <laughs> and that was my nickname in high school. So go to MikeMotorbike.com. And uh, here's the, all my books are up there. There's chapter downloads. I think what's interesting is I share the chapters, what I call the impact chapters. So it's not just like, you know, fluffy stories. You will actually get results by reading these free downloads. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal, too, so you can get that content. And I'm a, bot, a podcaster and a blogger. So if you go to MikeMotorBike.com, click on get the tools, click on that button and I'll hook you up with a lot of stuff. In one email, you'll get everything.
0: Awesome. Perfect. Thank you very much for coming on, Mr. Mike Cowatitz. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. All right. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mike McCowitz. And again, I really do highly recommend his books, especially Profit First. It's not just a book that's, oh, could be cool to read. No, it's actually something that can be really crucial to the survival of your business, even if you think you're doing well, because you might not, because there's so many stories of people who think they're doing really well and look at all these revenues and all the money that's coming in without looking at the money that's actually going out of their account uh, month by month and then nothing really uh, is there at the end. So read it. It's also fun and attending, simple. And The Pumpkin Plan as well. Really loved that one. Narrowed it down to what you need to focus on as well as... Yeah, keep an eye on the book that's coming out, which is Fix This Next, which I'm really looking forward to. Definitely gonna buy it and read it and recommend it to probably everyone again that I know. And if you enjoy this episode, then please leave a review on iTunes. Leave a like, a subscription, wherever you are consuming this content right now. Let me know if there's anything that I can improve on. And yeah, again, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.